This morning we're going to be picking it back up in Genesis chapter 26. We're going to take the second half, 18 through 35. Uh, but the title of this morning's message is, The Lord Has Made Room for Us. The Lord Has Made Room for Us, and we'll see that. Um, just to kind of recap and take a step back a little bit. Sarah dies, and Abraham remarries. Abraham sends Eleazar, if you remember, to find a wife for Isaac from their homeland and from his family. Finds Rebecca. Rebecca's willing to go. Rebecca and Isaac marry, and he finds comfort in her after the loss of his mom. He was close to this family, it seems. Abraham dies. Isaac and Rebecca remain childless for 20 years. Isaac prays, and Jacob and Esau are born. We read about uh, at some point Jacob and Esau trading the birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. We saw recently that a famine was in the promised land. And so Isaac, like his dad, the practical man, starts heading down towards Egypt. But God ends up telling him to dwell in the land where he is. And so Isaac stays with the Philistines, um, but he ends up having the same fears as his dad. And he calls Rebekah his sister, just like Abraham called Sarah his sister. Abimelech finds out, he sees them acting not like brother and sister, but husband and wife. He rebukes them, but he makes a decree that protects them. Isaac begins to plant and prosper, and pretty much ridiculously so, he begins to have such return on his investment in the land, even during a famine, uh, that the Philistines end up envying him and become to hate him, uh, because God is so obviously favoring him and blessing him. Uh, and so the Philistines want to kick him out, uh, so Isaac goes to the Valley of Gerar. Basically, he was living in Gerar, and he went to the countryside uh, out of the more inhabited areas. Uh, but as we start here, just a couple of questions. You know, where have you been digging in life as of late? Maybe it's at work. Maybe you're digging, uh, digging yourself a hole with an attitude or something else. Maybe you're digging, trying to find gold uh, in, a, in a new profession. Um, are you finding water when you're digging these wells? As we see, a lot of wells are going to be dug. Are you finding what you need in these efforts? And even if you're coming up with water, is it good water? Is it healthy for you? Is it good for you? Are the relationships and the pursuits in your life and the places you sit down to find rest at night or on the weekends or whenever it is, are they springing up new life in your life? You know that when the Lord does something, it always is full of life. But are these things, even if they seem like life at first, in the end, are they just drying you up and drying you out? Are they the healthiest places for you? Or are they wells of worldliness? And Lord, this morning, we just we need you to speak to us in your word and to guide us through it and to uh, just make it come alive to us because it is alive. It's living and active. And we pray that, God, you would just uh, have your way this morning. Help us dig down in your word and find life in you uh, as you're the living war. Just fill us and refresh us this morning, we pray. Bless your people. Care for your children, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start out in uh, Genesis 27. Uh, with, uh, we'll pick it up um, in verse uh, 17. We'll just step back one verse that we covered last week. It says, Then Isaac departed from there and pinched, pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar, and he dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. 
He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well running a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. We're going to see a lot of that today. A lot of digging of wells today. Um, and in a land... Uh, full of dirt and sand and mountains and heat. Uh, digging a well is a very good thing to do. If you can find water, it is a, a source of great wealth and riches. But we see that he begins here, as he moved out of Gerar into the Valley of Gerar, that he begins digging the wells of his father again. Um, that Abraham had dug wells in the past. Abraham had dwelled in the land for a while and uh, had moved around and found water for their flocks and herds and for their people as they uh, kind of migrated through the area. But it seems like the tolerance that the locals had for Abraham only lasted for the lifetime of Abraham. It did not extend past Abraham's life itself to his family, to his descendants. In a sense, they were making it very clear that they did not want the descendants of Abraham to stick around in this area. That Abraham was great and good. He was a good man. He helped us out. He was, uh, we had leagues with him. We gave him that, uh, sold him that burial land. But no more, you know, stay out. Um, and they were doing it in not such a subtle way. They were cutting off their very supply. Um, but as he, as uh, I keep wanting to say Jacob, but as Isaac uh, kept digging these wells, he redug them, he dug them up. He gave them the same name that his father had given them, that he's not changing the legacy of his dad. He's not trying to make them his own. He's saying, these are the wells of my dad. We're going to dig them up. We're going to call them the same thing because this is what we know them as. And this is very important to us as a people uh, just to maintain this, this familial uh, legacy. But as we see here, you know, we already saw that there's a famine in the promised land. Um, but that this promised land still would not come easy. It wouldn't come easy just uh, from the weather patterns and from the nature itself. But it's not going to come easy from the, the people that live there as well. They're not going to want to give up their homeland. And that makes sense. You know, you're in a land, someone else comes in and you don't want them there. You're going to do what you can to get them out. You know, they have their own land. Go back to your own country, so to speak. And there's still opposition there today. Uh, with the Israelites and with the Arab nations, they're still uh, saying this land is our land and this land, no, this land is our land. It's not, this land is my land, this land is your land. This, it's, it's one or the other. And then the difference comes down to is how they get their stake in that land. And the Bible clearly says that a lot of that land is Israel's, is his people's land. But you know, God is not uh, one to cast people off. He makes a way for that to be all their land. If they would just turn to God, they would automatically inherit the land. They don't need to turn to bombs. They need to turn uh, to the living God. But on a practical note, 
you would, you'd wonder why they would fill these in. These are perfectly good wells. You would think that they would just put a new name under new management, not Abraham's well anymore. You know, this is the Philistines well. Um, you know, that they're in this desert and water is very important. Why would you fill in a good source of water if you could just take it over? Um, you know, it, it just shows the, the depths of spite, the depths of, of uh, quarreling between these people um, because they, they were willing to get rid of this provision if it meant getting these people out of the land. And that kind of really shows the mentality even uh, that continues today, um, you know, that man, you know, Israel is doing well, but let's get them out of the land. And, you know, I'm seeing all these, from what I've heard, uh, all these fertile areas that Israel is in, and then they turn them over to the other peoples, and they're no longer fertile anymore. It's like, as long as we get the land back, we'll get it back at any cost we can, but they don't end up taking care of it for whatever reason um, in the same ways. But with that, we should be wary of anything that is stopped up in our life. Any place in our life that used to flow clean, fresh water, and all of a sudden it's not. All of a sudden the name is not there anymore. If there are places where this water used to flow freely in our lives, we need to redig them. We need to give them the old names. If you used to get up and do a devotional in the morning, and you're not getting up and doing that devotional anymore, and get back into the devotional. Dig that hole up. Name that place again in your life that it would be a special place, a place that is not forgotten. Oh. You used to get water there, but then we filled it in or let it get filled in. And then the name kind of got rubbed off the wall and I don't even remember where I was studying anymore. I don't even remember, you know, the further you get away from it, the further in time it goes back, the more dust and dirt gets blown over and you're not even sure where exactly that well was anymore. I knew it was around here somewhere. So dig it up, get back to it. And on top of that, keep an eye on those in your life who would either help you dig the well or who stop it up in your life. Keep those who help you dig those wells close and not be enemies necessarily with those who would seek to um, fill it in, but be take an honest look at the relationships and the things that we allow in our life and see if they really are in there for our best interest or not, or if they're just trying to get us out of their own land, so to speak, or get us to be um, dependent on them. You know, I think it's a side note. It's interesting how the government legislates personal freedoms away, begins to fill in those wells of personal freedom and personal responsibility, and instead wants us to then be dependent on them uh, to take care of all of our basic needs that are really our own responsibility. And I have to wonder, are they truly interested in our best interest or not when they offer these welfare programs? Not that welfare is bad, but free college uh, universal basic income, all these things, I don't know that it's really for our best interest for that to happen. And on top of that, is it even sustainable? But again, Israel, you look on a map, it's partly its location because of the coast, but Israel is very bountiful, fertile, and green, and it's very stark contrast to the areas around it. If we look at these areas where um, Isaac is going and digging these wells in the Philistines, where it's a very dry area, so Again, it's, man, you're filling in this place of water when water is very hard to come by. And, and it's not like they have giant well digging equipment. They have to dig these things by hand and find it. And just kind of, well, where's the water? Dig a hole and that's hard work and there's no water here, you know? It's saying they dug a well and found water makes it sound very easy, but it, it was a big deal. You know, in a sense, um, uh, it's like striking oil. You know, be today, you know, water, okay, we have water, it's easy, but someone strikes oil, you go, wow, they struck it rich. How do they find it? Got all these 
companies spend a lot of money, billions of dollars, trying to find new places. And they'll go in the middle of the Arctic, in the middle of the ocean, and do these crazy feats of engineering just to get to it uh, because it's worth it for them. Um, and in fact, it's interesting that there, there's kind of a correlation here of a striking oil that Moses, when he blesses the Israelites after his death, there's this interesting verse in Deuteronomy 33:24, And of Asher, he said, Asher is the most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. That in a sense that, man, you know, uh, perhaps where Asher, the tribe of Asher was, perhaps there is oil in the ground there. And a lot of people spend a lot of money and time looking for oil over there. The Middle East is rich in oil, but Israel hasn't found uh, too much yet. Uh, but again, there's some speculation that there could be vast untapped riches here based on this verse and some others. Excuse me. And in fact, it could possibly be part of the reason in the end times why uh, Gog and Magog, or Russia and Iran, come invading into this land to get the riches, as other scriptures say, because there's wealth there and they're both poised to take it. And it's interesting that already now we see in the past couple of years or decade or so, this, they're trying to build this pipeline from Russia and Iran into the region and the, the issues around that, the geopolitical issues to try and destabilize the dollar again based on oil and digging these wells in this region. But as they dug in the valley, even though they were away from the area where they were originally, the herdsmen continue to fight over it. The guys who are taking care of the animal and the livestock out in the field, um, man, there's a new well. They didn't dig it, but they come over and say, this is our well. This is our land. I don't care if you dug it or not. This is our well. And they begin to fight over it. And they quarrel over it. Uh, they haven't gone to war yet, but they're fighting. You know, that this is a, a good spot and they want it for themselves. And as Isaac continues to give the Philistines room, we see that, again, it, it wasn't enough for them. He was with them. He was fine with them. God blessed them. They weren't fine with him. They kicked him out. He's gone away, he's been nice and cordial, and he's digging his wells, and they fight. So he goes somewhere else, they fight, they go somewhere else, they leave him alone. And yet, it's not enough for them. And Proverbs 15, 16 says something very similar. It says, the, the leech has two daughters, give and give. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, and the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. You know, as a fire burns, as fire is never going to go, you know what, I've had enough burning for today. I'm going to go out and leave this perfectly good fuel here and not burn it. No, it has, the fuel has to be cut off. When they do a forest fire, they have to dig trenches and do other burns to get rid of all the fuel. That fire does not spread. Or you have to put water on it to quench it. But if you don't stop it, and there's no reason or landscape to stop that fire, it will keep going um, and going. It never says it's enough. Same thing with the grave. You know, death keeps happening and, you know, it's not some, somebody's not going to die and the grave's going to go, that's enough. But Jesus died and he said, that's enough. He said, it is finished. That death was finished there. But these people, and that's the way of the flesh, that's the way of the world, that's the way of greed and desire that is never enough. You can give and give and give to a, a needy or a, a person in your life who has no interest but their own. And they'll never be satisfied. Same again with politics. You know, one side will give over to another. We'll try and make a concession. But the other side's not going to be happy with that concession. They'll just more and more. And you'll give more and more and over and over. And it'll never end until they get their own way. 
But he says here, Esek. That means that the first place was contention. So they had a well and they started fighting. And he calls the next one Sitna, strife, because it was this continued fighting. This one argument turns into another one and another one and another one until it's totally broken down between the two peoples. It's constant fighting. And so he moves on. He moves on to find peace and he finds that. And in life, it's necessary at times to move on. When there's constant fighting, constant strife, just move on. When you're in an argument, it doesn't get better. Leave the room, close your mouth. But sometimes in a relationship, even if you've forgiven them and tried to make peace with them, it's just important to move on. You can't always stay friends. You can't always be friends. But like Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And if you can, be at peace with these people. If you can be around them and they can have their will and you can have your will, but if they keep fighting with you and you've done everything to make peace, well, you've done all you can, so you just need to move on. And sometimes in life, you just have to move on from those relationships or those situations or those pursuits. And that's okay. And as we'll see later, as uh, Jacob and Esau split and they split for a while, and then eventually they find peace with each other. You know, always have that heart of wanting that peace again, of wanting that relationship to be restored if possible again. But know that it's, it's not always possible in this lifetime if the other person won't agree. There's only so much you and I can do to make peace. But they move on and they dig another well and God blesses them. And they've dug all these wells. The Philistines weren't finding these wells, but uh, Jacob, Isaac and his people were finding wells. And they find this place called Reboth. And it means wide places or streets. So wide streets, wide places. It's open. It's free. It's peaceful. We've got water. We've got peace. And man, like the Bible says, it's better dwell in the corner of a housetop, in a tiny little apartment, crummy apartment, than a big old mansion with a quarreling and contentious woman. You know, it's, you can have a big and kingdom, but if you've got fighting and peace, Man, it feels small, but if you've got a tiny little place that you call your own and it's quiet and peaceful, man, that's worth more than all that. You know, Psalm 1836 says, You enlarged my path under me, and my feet did not slip. And Isaiah 54, 1 through 3 says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not labored with a child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make desolate the cities, make the desolate cities inhabited. You know, God wants to bless. God wants to increase. God wants to increase the room in your life. You may find your life getting smaller and smaller. Like Jesus said to Peter, when you're old, they'll take you where you don't want to go. And we see that Peter's life was, uh, he was hung upside down on a cross. That he went, he probably didn't want to go to the cross, but I guarantee he went. And even as he was tied there and nailed there like his Lord, I bet you he felt a great comfort and peace and felt very enlarged spiritually to know that he could suffer um, like his Lord. And yet he didn't want to be crucified uh, Straight up uh, history says because he didn't he, he didn't think himself worthy of that, but man, as, as, even if our life tends to be tight, God wants to fill it with peace to where our boundaries and our heart, our boundaries, spiritual boundaries, would far exceed any physical boundaries in our lives. You know, we see those who have great physical handicap or mental handicap, and yet they have such 
further boundaries in life. They've gone much further than you and I will go and overcome much more, even in just the practical or even just in the, some of those who are mentally handicapped have just such a, a softer heart and greater love and are kinder to people than, than even the smartest uh, professors in the world. But even spiritually, God wants to take you further than, than that, take you further than any limitation in your life or any opposition. Uh, and, you know, I, I can speak personally that there is great comfort and peace to be found when God is the one who is enlarging you and providing for you, uh, especially after coming out of a season of difficulty, of strife, of people who just won't relent and they just can't find peace. When God takes you out and brings you to a place that, that he's prepared for you and enlarged for you and promised for you, there's, there's no greater peace than that to know that, man, God has done this for us. But, man, when we fight and we try and take wells that other people have dug and make them our own, man, there's no peace in that. Even if all our needs are met, there is no peace in that. But God appears to, to Jacob that very night that he gets there, that same night it says, you know, that God didn't wait. <laughs> Isaac, sorry, thank you. See, I'm messing up. Uh, but God appears to him that same night. He didn't wait, and he says, I'm the God of your father. You know, Isaac's relationship with the Lord, I don't know how deep it was yet. Obviously, he grew up, and he was on the altar, and the ram was there, and he prayed for Rebecca, and God answered his prayer. But I don't know how deep it was yet. You know, he had obviously prayed for all these things. Um, but in a sense, there was still a great comfort I, I, I get from this that uh, to be found knowing that this was the God of his dad. That when God appeared to him, he says, he doesn't say, hey, Isaac, I'm God. He says, I'm God of your father, Abraham. That man, you know, that I'm sure Isaac had a relationship with his dad that was so close. He was a special promised kid. His dad loved him. And man, to know that it was the God of his father, that there was a great comfort. And knowing that not only this is God, but man, this God had a relationship with my dad and he wants a relationship with me as well. And he wanted that same faith as his dad, I think. And I believe that Abraham's love for Isaac, just making sure I've said the right name, <laughs> love for Isaac, uh, I believe it deeply impacted him. That man, when his dad loved him, it pushed his faith even farther. And I hope that as a dad, I love my children to the point where they know I love, I love them, they love me so much that they want to have a relationship with my God and make, it their, make him their God. I just get the sense that God was excited for this night, waiting for this moment. There's been all this strife in your life. Isaac, you've come here. I'm showing up to you this night. I want to make it known to you right away that in this place of peace is where I want to have a relationship with you, that I'll take you away from all the, the persecution and give you a safe place to, to, to be with me. I'll let you have this promised land, that this promised land is for you, despite what everyone says and everyone's doing. This land is for you, Isaac. And so what does he do? Isaac builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. I love that. He calls on the name of the Lord. We see this often in Scripture. That's when their relationship gets deeper is when they begin to call on the name of the Lord. Men begin to call on the name of the Lord. This is another step for him and I think that the, it, it gets a little deeper here for him. But they built all these wells when they had found water. They'd find water and they'd build a well. They'd find water and they build a well. I mean, it's kind of like chicken drag. Do they dig the hole and find the water and make the well? I think that's kind of the, you know, you do an exploratory dig, you find the water, and then you kind of 
go back in and probably solidify it, put your pump in and all that stuff that you're going to do nowadays. But when Isaac was watered by the Lord, he built an altar. And when we find spots in our life, when God ministers to us and, and feeds us and gives us drink, so to speak, spiritually, whether that's a, a physical moment, a physical place, I'm, you know, I, the place where I came to know the Lord for sure when I called on the name of the Lord was in uh, a town called Chester, New York, and a little development called Whispering Hills. And I have no affination for that development. It's starting to get a, starting to get a little weary, um, a little loud, a little uncomfortable. Um, nice people there that I still know, but it, somehow it's special for me because I know that in that room in my mom's townhouse that I called on the name of the Lord for the first time. And so in a sense, that's a special place for me, but only for that reason. I wouldn't, I wouldn't travel across the country to go visit it or anything like that. Um, but again, in those places in our lives, physically, emotionally, spiritually, or even doctrinally, God gives you a word, highlight it, write it down, mark it. I've got dates next to things in my Bible when God speaks to me. You know, that man, I remember, oh, God, you know, God spoke to this in, in my life. Build an altar there. Build a wall around it. Protect it. Do whatever you have to do. The relationships in life that God's given to you, protect them. Build altars there. Spend time with the Lord, with your spouse, and with your friends, and your family. Do those things, and those relationships will be strengthened and uh, will be eternal. But he sees here, we see here that he digs another well, that he's putting down roots. He's willing to stay. You know, a well is a serious endeavor. You know, if, if I'm on a road trip, I'm not going to dig a well somewhere, but if I'm looking for a place to live, I'll put down a well, and I want to stay there. And for the first time in my life, I feel... Like the Lord's leading us to put down roots and things in this area that, you know, in other places in life, I've put down roots so much, but I've always been ready to move on. And I feel uh, here that God would have us continue to put down wells and, and we'll see what the Lord does in time. But man, just that this would be, you know, we know spiritually that this is our home and we look forward to being physically having more and more uh, uh, wells, so to speak, to draw from. Let's go on. Verse 26. It says, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Since we have not touched you, and since we have nothing, uh, done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and they drank. Then they rose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. We see here Abimelech, Ahuzeth, um, and Phicol. And basically, Abimelech, again, is just the title. It's not the guy's name. Ahuzeth, apparently, is the guy's name, but it means possession. Um, so I don't know what his friendship with the king was like. Um, perhaps he was some sort of, uh, he owed him something, you know. Uh, and then Phicol is, is a name for sort of a general. Uh, so I don't know that anyone named their kid Phicol. Um, but it's interesting that a king, a friend, and a commander come here. And certainly that is Jesus to us, right? A king a friend and a commander. Uh, and these guys were a delegation of peace. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still an interesting situation. You know, these, 
these things in life, these relationships that we come up with in life, sometimes political or money or possessions or, you know, you, you run into people for all sorts of reasons in life. But this one's a little interesting because even though he's gone, he's left, he did what they wanted him to do, he keeps moving on, they keep attacking him when he makes a well, so he moves on. He's not out of their minds. Again, they're not satisfied with him moving on and going somewhere else and leaving them behind. Um, you know, they can't get him out of their minds. Uh, you know, the blessings of the Lord on his life can still be seen from far away. That man, he left, but oh, it still irks them. He's still under their skin because God is blessing him. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's just walked along, dug a hole, and it's been a well because God was blessing him and leading him. And isn't that the case in our lives? As we go and God blesses us, that we, sometimes we don't do anything wrong and it. The world just wants us to move on and not be involved in what they're doing, even if we have nothing to do with it. Um, but 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through... 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So you become examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that, man, these people love the Lord, they're following the Lord, they're full of faith. They've responded to the message that Paul and the others have brought, and that their faith has action. Their faith is evident to every region in the land that they know that these people know the Lord. And that's the same thing here, that as Isaac follows the Lord, it's evident to everyone that's around him. And in fact, it's so evident that in their flesh, they're threatened by it. And Isaac here is, is rightfully curious and wary why they come to him. He's like, guys, you, you don't like me anymore. You kicked me out. I left you. Why are you here? What's what's up with this? Like, you know, like I would have been friends with you. But you know, you don't want to be friends with me anymore. So what do you what are you coming to me for? What do you want? Uh, you know, it's interesting again that a king and one of his friends come, but he also brought a general. Um, and I think of as uh, we've been having these so-called uh, peace and disarmament talks with North Korea over the past couple of years. You know, when we went over there, at least the first time, we parked our entire fleet of carriers and military groups off their coast. Uh, you know that, hey, we're here for peace, but make no mistake, we will crush you if you do anything bad. You know, and I think that that's kind of important when you're dealing with a dictator, when you're dealing with a madman who oppresses his people in such a way. But these guys, I think, in a sense, were saber-rattling. You know, but again, Isaac wasn't a despot. He wasn't a dictator. He had done them no harm. He had lived peacefully with them. And in fact, he even just kept leaving. He dug all these wells, put all these resources in, and they fought him. And he just, or even just argued with him. And he said, oh, you know, it's fine. I'm just going to go. He was being peaceable with these people. And I feel for Isaac because I think at this point, he probably thought it was all behind him. I've come here. God spoke to me, built an altar. <laughs> We've got wide open spaces. And just as he kind of sits down to have his tea, or whatever he's having, his goat's milk, I don't know, here comes Phicol and Abimelech and Ahuzeth. And I'm sure the king didn't come just by himself. You know, they didn't just hop in, you know, a tiny car together. They probably had a whole delegation with them. 
You know, again, those blessings of the Lord were threatening to those around him, even though he had shown them no aggression. In fact, the very opposite. It wasn't the same as Jesus. He showed them no aggression, and they came after him, and they arrested him like a thief, and they beat him. You know, they saw the blessing of God on Isaac, but because they didn't have that relationship with the Lord, although they had some personal righteousness, we saw earlier, you know, uh, when Isaac was trying to cover up Rebekah as his wife, and Abimelech himself was like, you could have brought such great sin on us. And he put this decree out. They still felt powerless when God was blessing on him. What did they say? They said, uh, you are now the blessed of the Lord. As if to say, like, we used to be the blessed of the Lord. Now you're the blessed of the Lord. I don't think they had a relationship with God. They probably, you know, they probably viewed God as just another one of the gods that they worshipped. But man, they, they realized that the favor wasn't on them anymore. The famine was on their land. But this guy was blessed and they were worried. They knew they were losing out. And I can remember even just being a, a young believer, being around um, other believers, even my pastor's wife in the beginning, and words that would come out of my mouth that weren't bad words, so to speak. When I was around this person, I would just feel convicted. <laughs> like, I can't believe I just said that. And it was, she never said anything or did anything. There was never anything that led me to do that other than it was just conviction of God, you know, seeing that there's other people who have purer lives than I do in a sense, at least in some sense, they've been further sanctified than I had at that point. And it brought conviction on me. And thankfully, I was a believer, so it encouraged me to write since I didn't make a pact with them. Don't hurt me if I say a bad word. But that's kind of what's going on here. You know, it's an oath and agreement that he would do them no harm. That Isaac would not hurt these guys. There's three of them there. There's, you know, multiple people, multiple nations, and they've, you know, I mean, I know it's kind of not nations like we have today. It was more tribal and things of that nature. But still, he hasn't done them any harm. He hasn't shown them any aggression. We don't know if he even has any swords other than enough to, like, kind of protect his land, let alone go to war. But they're worried that he would do them no harm. And yet, they claim to him in this argument that they've done him no harm. And maybe Abimelech directly didn't do it, but he allowed his people to do it. They kicked him out. They pushed him out. They dug in the wells. Um, the, the king's people were certainly doing it. And we know before the king knew that there was a relationship between the people and the nation and him. So they're not exactly being 100% honest here. And, you know, you always got to be wary when someone brings you a deal. When that fine print, you know, on that 20-page agreement, you know, it says, like, you, know, you sign all these agreements online where you download an app or sign up for a social media and it's 20 pages long but you don't read it well you probably should read it because when you read it you find out that you know if it's free it's really you're the product that you're the one being sold that the advertisers are the real customers for those things and then kind of interesting with the government too the government's offering us a bunch of free things and we have this giant healthcare document they say you don't need to read it until after we pass it that's, that should be worrisome. You know, I'm not saying one thing or another for healthcare, but I'm saying the way that they did that is very shady. But even though, even though it's kind of a shady deal and he hasn't done them any wrong and they kind of show up with Fike all the general, he makes them a feast. They stay the night. 
And in the morning, they make a deal. And again, that's important. And in the morning, you, you hear the, the terms, you consider it, you pray about it, and then the next day or later on, you know, don't rush into it. Take your time with it, especially with big decisions. But it says that they departed in peace. And again, that's the best outcome possible here. That, you know, they came here, and whatever their terms were, it was just for peace. And Isaac wasn't trying to do something, you know, tit for tat. He said, okay, let's just do this. I'm fine. I got no problem with you. You're the one who's threatened by me, so I've got no problem signing a peace agreement with you. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9 through 11, we won't read the whole thing for time, but he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And later on he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? You know, make peace. Love those. Make a feast for them, even if they aren't kind to you. Let's go on and read the last couple of verses here. 32, it says, It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Uh, and that's true, even to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Uh, it's not Elon Musk, it's Elon the Hittite. And they were of grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So he goes on. And what does he do? You guessed it. He finds and digs another well. That this guy is just prospering wherever he's going. Wherever he sets foot, there's water. And so this place called Sheba, it means an oath or the, a seven. Uh, there's an oath here. And so this is the well of the oath, Beersheba. So when you, when you see that city or Beersheba, as it's kind of written today, remember that that is where Isaac and these guys formed an oath for peace. And that was the founding of this city. But as we move on here, we're moving on and switching gears a little bit as we come to a close uh, to Esau. We see that Esau, like his dad, got married at age 40. But I get the sense Esau was still wild and he wasn't ready to be tied down. And then, so to speak, as someone in the world might say, I don't feel tied down, babe. But uh, I feel uh, freed up in and, and, and good ways. But uh, he was a man, he was a wild man, a worldly man. I don't want to get married. He's 40, he gets married. And when he does get tied down, he doesn't just pick one, he picks two. Takes two ladies to be his, his wives, and well, I don't really have to say too much about that. But he doesn't go back to his familial land like his dad did, or as, as Abraham had his dad do to find a wife. He finds one of the people of the area, the Hittites, and we know in the Bible that all these ites uh, tend to be uh, a pain for Israel. You know, Judges fourteen one through three says, "Now Samson." went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She pleases me well. We see that the Lord allowed this in Samson's life because he was desiring to move against the Philistines. But, you know, I guarantee the Lord could have done it another way, in a sense, uh, if Samson had been obedient. You know, this ended up causing, costing Samson his life. But these girls that 
Esau goes and picks up. First one, Judith. People still name their daughter Judy. It's a name that's made it this way. and It actually means Jewish or praised. It's a name that carries on uh, through uh, Israel's history. But Esau praised her for some reason, I bet. And I'm going to guarantee, I'm going to wager that it was probably her beauty. But as we see, she was not a praiseworthy woman, apparently. And she did not garner praise from her parents when he brought her home. Uh, but the name, again, is still around today. And this other one, Bashamath or Basmath. Uh, I'm not naming my kids Bathmat, Bathmat or anything like that, I don't know. Uh, but it means spice. And Esau liked this spice girl very much. And he brought her home. But this girl, this spice, this fragrance and flavor was very bitter to his parents. You know, I don't know anyone who names their daughter Spice anymore. <laughs> if you name your daughter Spice, you, you, you probably should rethink that for her sake. Um, but I guarantee her parents named her Spice with good intentions. But this girl turned out to not be uh, a good girl. Uh, but they bring grief of mind or bitterness to soul to his parents. You know, again, these were not the women that they'd want their son to marry. These women were obviously not very holy. Uh, the relationship that he had with them was not very holy. He's a very fleshly man, and he marries two women. He was a man of the world, and so were these women, and they got each other. They were not probably not wholesome or responsible. They were probably not motherly or godly in some sense. Uh, I saw this clip of, I don't know how I saw it, you know, how the internet works, but there's like this celebrity, this very famous celebrity, and she walks out to her car, and she's getting into her car, she's got all the paparazzi and her bodyguards, and she gets in her car, and then she stops, and she turns around, she walks briskly back in, and out of like the fancy hotel, wherever they were, and she comes back out, she's got her kid in her arm. Like, kid's obviously a prop, or, you know, obviously she's not the best mom in the world. I mean, we all forget things, but come on. She's got a million other people to carry her coffee for her. She can carry her kid and not forget her kid. So she probably went back in and found the kid's real caretaker and grabbed the kid. But these ladies, they proved it, I think, by their actions that it wasn't just a first impression of them. You know, sometimes first impressions can be very wrong. Sometimes they can be very right. But this was grief of mind and bitterness to his soul, to his parents, that this was a lasting condition in their family. This bothered them for a while. Um, and it's interesting that it was grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. We know that Esau was Isaac's favorite. And perhaps his dad just wouldn't say anything. He's my favorite. He married these girls. And yeah, they're pretty. But, you know, uh, they're just a grief. And, you know, maybe he just doesn't have that. He idolizes his son in some way. So maybe he doesn't say something to his son about the decisions he's making. And obviously, he didn't have the influence on his son the way Abraham did. On him, he encouraged the flesh in his son with the hunting and everything. And even if he was grieved, he wouldn't say anything to him. And man, as a dad, I need to be able to say whatever I need to say to my kids. And not just be grieved because I don't like it, but if it's over something that's important. And again, you know, Rebecca favored Jacob. So I'm sure Rebecca wanted to say something to her son Esau. Bring these ladies in my house. What are you doing? Maybe Isaac wouldn't let her. 
Maybe they had arguments at night, and Isaac said, you know, I'm not saying that to Esau. We're keeping the peace in this house, and he's keeping the peace at a point where, you know, they are married, so what's he going to do? But, you know, I think you see where I'm going there. But can we imagine the family dynamic and holiday meals here? <laughs> These wild, clamorous, and worldly wives, and, you know, Beverly Hills or Atlantic City or Las Vegas, and they're in this home. You know, Esau's at the table and these people are now a part of your family. It's probably like one of those daytime talk shows. I wonder, have we taken wives of the world, so to speak, in our lives? That would be a grief of mind to our Heavenly Father. Are there things in our life that for those who uh, spiritually look out for us would be grieved by? Maybe they just haven't said something yet. I, I pray that they would say something. And if we are those people, that we would say those things. Those hard things. And are we digging wells in the right places in life? Are we even finding water when we dig them? Or are we fighting for someone else's provision? Or someone else's place? Are we threatened by those who are blessed by God and blessed in life? Are we threatened by them? And I wonder, in the church even... When we're so threatened by God's blessing on somebody else and somebody else's ministry, why we don't rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping? Are we not just jealous that God is blessing them and we feel like we've lost the favor with God? And I have to wonder, if we pedal that back, if we're threatened by God blessing someone else because we feel like they're blessed now and we're not blessed, why do we feel like we're not favored anymore? Is it because we've left that well? Is it because we filled up the own wells in our lives? Because, you know, God wants to bless us all. And God will use us all if we allow him to. And he'll use us all differently. And some of us may have visible blessings that are more than others. We may only have one well in life and someone may also have ten wells. But, man, are we being good stewards of it? Are we, are we in the right place with the Lord? Because if we, if we are, then we're going to rejoice when someone else is blessed. And if we're not, we're going to envy them and try and make a deal with him. Don't come over here. Don't do it. Don't do that. And along with that, and maybe related to that, have we allowed God to speak to us, to tell us where to live and go? You know, we were talking to some good friends the other night, and they've moved around a lot. We moved moved around a lot, and that's not necessarily a sign of being spiritual is moving around. But sincerely, if God tells us to move on, and whether that's physically move on get a different job, move to a different state, find another house, or that's just emotionally, we just have to move on from these relationships because they're not good, or even if they're good, but God says, I just have something else for you. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go where God has called us and dig those wells? Or are there places in our life that need to have peace made? Whether it's an actual accord with someone and you make peace with them legally in court, or maybe it's just peace in a relationship. You reach out to them and try and love on them and make peace in that relationship as much as is possible with you. And again, if those godly wells in your life need to be redug, redig them today. Don't let them blow over and dry up any longer. Name them the old names again. Give them those old names that you had. Drink from them again. Don't wait. Don't delay. You only go so long without water before you die. As we close, John 4, 5-14 says, 
So Jesus came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So you see here a little relationship here, close to where we are in Scripture. But Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And I tell you that when I'm weary spiritually pursuing the things that God has led me to pursue in life, and it wears me out, it's going to wear me out because I need his living water. And I find that if I just sit and spend a moment with him and read or pray or worship and just seek him for those things, that he does give me living water. And it does well up within me to give me strength to go on. And I pray that it overflows and that through, hopefully through a message like today, that you've received something from it and that you can drink from it. And that more than that, it wasn't my water. Because if you drink from my water, it's probably going to taste like soda or iced tea and you're going to get thirsty again. But if you let the Lord quench your thirst, you'll have everlasting life. So God, this morning again, we ask that you would again just fill us with your living water. That out of your Bible, the living water, God, you would feed us and, and, and quench our thirst and strengthen us and give us rest and cool us off in the heat of the day. God, we pray that the wells that need to be dug in our life or redug would be, we'd work on that even today. We'd go to the store and get a post hole digger as we see fit and, and do these things. But God, we ask for the relationships in our life that are quarrelsome or full of strife or grievous, that God, you'd help us deal with them properly and passionately and and holy, and that, God, you'd restore them when possible, but help us move on when we need to. And, God, we pray that you would enlarge your territory, God, that you'd enlarge the territory of your people, uh, even in this valley and of the ministries here, that you'd widen their wells and let them become giant geysers of water, of living water, that people, everyone in this valley would have a, a safe place to go to church, and that your church would be one, even as we're separate, that we'd be holy and one and uh, in you and in a good place with you. We ask these things and your blessings this day, as only you can. Come soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.